Olaso. Welcome to the last day of silent retreat. Tomorrow, the turbulence will begin. In terms of calming the mind, really developing the stability, we're not the first generation or the first culture or society to grapple with this or to grapple with the frustration about how difficult it is to get simply to do this simple thing and to get the mind to calm down. I know quite a number of practitioners, including some very capable Tibetans, basically gave up on it, on shamatha. Gave up, said, can't do it. I think there were largely, one, one in particular comes to mind, definitely doing visualization practice. Can't do it, can't do it. Gave up on that, went off and did other practices, right? And of course, in extreme cases, and I've heard more than one say this, these are Tibetans, Tibetans saying, even going beyond that, and saying, um, the age of realization is over. The age of realization over. The overall theme, we know it from all, all traditions of Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, and so forth, the decline of Buddhism. We're slipping into the Kali Yuga, we're slipping into the age of degeneration. 500 years, 500 years, after 2,500 years, it's basically a little few little twitchings of the dying corpse. So there's kind of an optimistic view of welcome to Buddha Dharma. You can, you, you, we are here to preside over its funeral. <laughs> now after 2,500 years, now that Buddha Dharma has finally become global, I mean it really did take 2,500 years to really get out of Asia, to get to Brazil, to get to Australia, to North America, to Europe and so forth, it took 2,500 years and there are some who are telling us us global citizens, uh, that it's DOA, it's dead on arrival. But enjoy the shards, enjoy the, you know, peeking over the corpse. Um, wish we could have kept it alive, but gosh, nobody's perfect. And then there are others like His Holiness Dalai Lama saying, if you practice now, like Milarepa, you'll achieve now, like Milarepa. That the environment doesn't simply determine how well you can practice, right? Having said that, it seems like almost every day there's another news clipping, another science, science report, basically re-emphasizing this point without using exactly these words, and that is that our modern society is an ADHD society. It's not just the clinic like diagnosed, for which again, the primary inter intervention is Ritalin, and I had an interesting conversation with a neuroscientist friend of mine about this just recently, and he's a very good man, um, very, very good neuroscientist. And when I raised the issue that maybe meditation could be helpful, especially, especially shamat, it's all about attention, uh, he said, well, there's, you know, there's really no studies to back that up. 2,500 years of Buddhism doesn't count. So I thought, well, okay, for clinically diagnosed ADHD, all right, fair enough. At the same time, it really is a smooth spectrum. And to say that, that there's no evidence that meditation actually can attend, you know, help prevent or treat attention skills, strikes me as being a, just a wee bit ethnocentric. Just the fact that the modern West is no good at it doesn't mean that nobody's good at it. Although it's easy to get fall into that. But the, what, I'm, what I see, because I do read the news daily, uh, is that time and again they're telling us that the whole lifestyle of modernity, the most recent one, I think it's on the New York Times right now, is telling us that we're just so addicted to our gadgets we're checking our super, super iPhones or the other G3s and whatever, all the fast high-speed iPads and the iPhones and the internet and the telephone and 
text messaging, text messaging. And then when we want to relax, then we go play video games, you know, and then watch television and radio. And then, oh, what's happening on the internet? Oh, and let's not forget Twitter and Facebook and all the other ways to spend our time very, very meaningfully. And so there's significant evidence that this is actually doing brain damage. That that lifestyle itself is doing brain damage. And as Einstein said, the mind, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting, but the mind that created the problem is not the mind to solve it. And this is all embedded in this whole way of attending to ourselves, regarding ourselves, where I've seen multiple essays just over the last couple of days, simply flat out equating mind and brain, mind and brain. And what I find very interesting is presenting the brain as the agent. An article just came out, somebody, did I check it out? Somebody sent it to me from MIT. And the brain was doing all the work. The brain does this, and the brain does that, and the brain does this. And I thought, what about me? What about me? You know? Like, my liver has its function, but I don't know how to do that. I think it cleanses the blood, doesn't it, and creates new blood cells. And the whole gastrointestinal tract knows how to digest food and separate the waste from the nutriment. And my lungs know how to take in oxygen, and the heart knows how to pump knows how. I mean, it does it. I don't know how to do any of those things. I don't know how to pump blood. I don't know how to digest food. I don't know how to do any of those things. Right? I mean, that's, I've got my, I've got my staff. <laughs> Take care of it down there. I'll try to give you good food. Carry on, you know. And I'm going to be the prince. I mean, I've given you, given you that analogy a number of times. I'll be the prince. I'll do what I can do. And you, the digestive tract, sweat glands, and all that kind of business, do your stuff. Take care. And I'll just try to do what I'm good at. And what I'm, you know, moderately good at is I can think, I can remember, I can pay attention, I can cultivate a good heart. Those are the kind of things I can do that. But this whole way of presenting ourselves in, in the modern media, and it's ubiquitous, is you're not doing that, your brain's doing that. So suddenly I seem to be out of work because they're treating the brain like any other internal organ. I don't know how to do any of the work of any of the other internal organs. The one thing I know how to do is use my mind, and now the, the, the whole press is telling us, you're not doing that, the, this part of the cortex is doing that, this part is doing that. In other words, we're just kind of innocent bystanders as the brain is doing everything, and of course, anything goes wrong, anything goes wrong, it's considered to be an imbalance in the brain. And therefore, since the brain's doing, doing all the work. If anything goes wrong with your mind, well, just fix the brain because that's doing everything. And you're just an idle bystander. The mind that created this problem is not the mind to solve it. I think we've got to get out of that mindset, out of that worldview, which is frankly delusional, out of that set of priorities and out of that set of, of way of life because it's literally damaging our brains. Oh, gosh, and I think it's damaging our minds as well. And as far as this whole thing of Buddhism being dead on arrival, that's one of those things where I'll go back to His Holiness on the one hand, my primary teacher, but also William James, and that is some things become true if and, only if, if and only if you believe they are true. Is it possible for people the likes of us, ordinary people raised in, you know, in Sydney, in Germany, and in Russia, in South America, in America, and so forth, for people like us, is it possible to achieve shamatha? And listening to some teachers say, oh no, you can't do it, you, you won't be able to do it. Well, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you believe you can't, well, that pretty well, that, that's a done deal. Nobody achieves it while thinking they won't be able to do it. I've never heard of a person who was convinced they couldn't achieve Shambhata. But then they surprised themselves. They went through all the nine stages. And, oh, gee, I was wrong. 
don't think so. I don't think so. Right? Now, there are some who, and this has been going on for some time now, some recognizing the obvious, and that is the mind is tumultuous, chaotic, blah, 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 saying, well, shamatha doesn't work, it's boring. And after all, Hindus do it, how, could, how good could it be? Hindus do it, they're not even Buddhist. Not, not to mention the Hinayanas and those poor Sutrayana, Sutrayana people. But we'll just do Vajrayana. And I heard one knowledgeable practitioner at one of the Mind Life conferences, knowledgeable, no dummy, good meditator, make the comment that, well, you know, in the, in, in, in the face of all the instability, the rambling, the agitation of the mind, how we deal with in this in Vajrayana practice, specifically stage of generation practice, is keep it moving, keep it moving. Om agam payam pushpe dupe aloke gende naivite shata prachitsan zoha. Finished with that. Good. Next. Just keep it moving. Keep an out, light going out, light going in, up and down, down to the seed syllable, out and then ding 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 More mantras. Mantra, 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 mantra. Okay, now more visualization. Pop, pop, pop. Are you ready to go? You want a long version? We can do that too. You know? And that's how you overcome the problem of stability. This person actually proposed this. And the Dalai Lama said, that's wrong. That's wrong. That is no substitute for developing stability. You don't get stability. William James recognized this 100 years ago. That yes, the ordinary, the untrained mind can develop an ongoing coherence by following a developing line of thought. Now, we've all done that. You can read well. You can, you can read a whole page and never, never miss a beat, never have your mind wander if it's interesting, right? You can read well, you can play video games well. These young people get into video games and man, they're in samadhi. Changing, 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 and then, you know, fried at the end, but while they were doing it, the attention was really on. So William James recognized a long time ago that yes, you can maintain stability on an ongoing developing topic, a video game, reading something on the internet, and so forth and so on. That's been known for a long time. But the Dalai Lama said, no, that's wrong. If you think that's a substitute for stability, there is no substitute for stability. Stability means you're calming the mind, you're silencing the mind. You're developing stability. And in stage of generation, you don't develop stability by just keeping moving, moving, moving. You come to the end, you recite the mantra, and then you stop. Because otherwise you're doing everything with the coarse mind. Vajrayana, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, six yogas and Naropa, all being done with that clunky, dysfunctional, oscillating between excitation and laxity coarse mind. How good is that really going to turn out when the Buddha never taught it, and neither did Tsongkhapa, neither did any of the great masters. We just get impatient, we look for shortcuts, and we just want out. We want to anesthetize. So many of us, I think, we just want to anesthetize the, the turbulence of our own minds. So we do it with drugs, we do it with entertainment, we do it with reading, we do it with talk, we do it with work, anything to cover over what's the state of affairs of the mind, right? Now, in this regard, uh, one person commented, keep this anonymous, because I think, number one, it was requested, but number two, it's relevant to a lot of people here, and that is, even with strong motivation, and I know this person, I have a lot of respect for this person, even with good motivation, inspiration, intelligence, willpower, good ethics, all of these, it can happen on occasion that you just find, I sit down and the mind just goes into daydreaming. 
Okay? I really, I really want to achieve shamatha. And out goes the mind. You sit down and... And then you say, oh, that was, that was short. Okay, let's try it again. Out goes the mind again. Well, let's try supine position. <laughs> and it's all over the place. You know? And so this can be a little bit discouraging. That is, with all of those, you know, we say, hey, wait a minute, I was inspired, I was motivated, I have discipline, I'm intelligent, I have good ethics, I've received the instructions, I think they're really good, and when I do them, they don't happen. How come it doesn't carry over into the session? So there may be only one person who's had that experience here, but I doubt it. Um, well, one, one factor here in this retreat is that somebody got into the retreat and I wasn't quite certain, I mean, it was one in particular person, and so I have to finger this person, got into this retreat and this person just keeps on talking and talking and talking and disturbing people's minds, sometimes for 45 minutes at a stretch. You know, ask this person a simple question, he goes on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and he just seems utterly intent on disturbing people's minds and really creating turbulence just when they're settling down. Then he goes and launches off into quantum mechanics or neuroscience or William James. I mean, just this person seems really intent on just blowing everybody's stability entirely every day except for Sunday. Person got into the retreat. I don't know. I, I, I never saw the application. I would not have let him in myself. <laughs> This is supposed to be a silent retreat, right? <laughs> so, so, but we'll, we'll kick him out on Saturday because it'd just be impolite to kick him out before then. So there's one, one source of agitation is especially the afternoon sessions, right? And it is, but it's also deliberate. That is, not deliberately agitating, but if these practices are going to find a home, not simply an excursion like eight weeks in Phuket, a tourist capital of Asia, and then come home. But if these practices are to have a home in your own mind streams, it's not enough to become a laboratory technician. Just know the techniques. And I train you like laboratory technicians. That was never my intention. But treating you all as, as for what you are, I mean, it's, it's not praising you, as responsible, intelligent adults, seeking greater meaning and greater sanity and greater clarity in your lives. That's what I've been assuming, and they've not been disappointed once. But for that reason, then feeling all right, sometimes giving the longer answers, not just insisting, let's just keep it practical, folks, just keep it practical, but giving context, challenging assumptions, challenging values, and so forth. And so that when you leave here, you do have something of a worldview that does approach, maybe is quite fully, really supportive of the single pointed pursuit of genuine happiness. I'd have to say, from my own very limited experience, I don't know a single person. It's just an observation, but it's just from my experience. It's not a generalization for everybody else's. I don't know of a single person who simply embraces a, materiali a materialistic worldview and the values that are absolutely implicit in that worldview and the way of life that fits hand in glove, completely compatible with that worldview. I don't know a single person who's totally embraced the worldview, values, and way of life of materialism, who's become a very dedicated, full-time yogi. A lot, a lot, a lot, lots and lots and lots. 
will go off on three-month retreats, they'll do an hour or two of practice a day, they'll, you know, do that. But a person who's going off for years, months or years, absolutely dedicated to the path of awakening, I don't know of a single one. I do know many people who have embraced such a materialistic worldview, values, and way of life, who are working 14 hours a day. Gelam Rimba was doing pretty intensive practice. I know quite a number of people putting in 14-hour days, 12-hour days, 16-hour days, seeking to make more money, to pursue the eight mundane concerns in the pursuit of hedonic well-being. I know plenty like that because it fits. It's completely compatible. They support each other. But to take that worldview and say, well, that worldview, way of life and, and, you know, and values, and let's apply that to meditation. Lots of luck. It doesn't fit. Any more than if you're, if you're really immersed in your, your way of viewing reality is really corresponding closely to the Buddha's view of weighing reality. And the values are very much along the lines of renunciation and bodhicitta. I don't know anybody with that deep, deep dedication and appreciation and understanding of the Buddhist worldview, the values, the meditation, the ethics and so forth, who's spending 16 hours a day trying to make money. I don't know anybody, because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Why, would you, why not earn enough? Why not take care of your family? That's meaningful. Why are you going for millions and millions and millions and millions? Unless, and there are cases of this, millions and millions in order to be of greater and greater service. That's possible. But for one's sake, for one's own sake, doesn't make any sense. So what to do as we are now venturing into, and of course I'm going on and on as usual, but these are the last, the last time that we'll attend to together this next phase of awareness of awareness. So what to do today, but also tomorrow when we, I encourage you to speak, not all day, but at least during mealtimes, you might still be able to put in eight hours a day, but during mealtimes, I encourage you to speak. I'll join you. I will speak. Uh, if you don't want to, nobody's going to force you, you know. Okay. <laughs> Nobody will do that, you know. Um, but I encourage you to speak as we segue out, hopefully have a smooth a transition out. But whether for today or then tomorrow when we start in transition and then Saturday, big transition, getting home, airports, big, big transition, what to do if you find that even though you'd like to practice, the mind just doesn't cooperate? It just doesn't do it. You sit down, the mind just goes off onto its trip. Here's what I would suggest. We have two strategies. Just in terms of sheer technique. Context, of course, is enormously important. But in terms of sheer technique. The infirmary. It's not enough, so I'm going to elaborate. But the infirmary, going to the supine position, full body awareness, resting awareness in the earth element. Get grounded, get grounded. Your mind is like a handful of helium balloons, all wanting to go off in different directions. Put a big lead weight on it. Ground your awareness in the earth element. Sayajunga, in the earth element. And then breathe out. Now here's the breathing again. As you're breathing out, Give it all away. It's easy to forget. But as you're breathing out, give it all away. Watch yourself give it all away. I'll give a cartoon of it. I'm going to breathe out now. I'll try to make it obvious that I'm breathing out.
and I'm breathing in. I could have stopped two or three times along that course and felt, okay, I, I paid my bill. I paid back. I paid my bill, right? But there was more I could give. And what I wasn't doing, I wasn't pushing it out. I wasn't trying to make it longer. I was just giving it all away. To several of you, I give an analogy. I'll give it now, because I like it. And that is, imagine that if you've got a, an utterly trusted friend, a lifelong friend that you've known for decades, maybe from childhood, and this person, let's say it's a man, and this person you know to be of utter integrity, you can completely trust, you could trust with your life. Okay? Imagine such a friend. Okay, it's a hypothetical. And then this person comes to you and says, uh, Mugila, Mugila, um, we've been friends for 30 years now, you know me, um, I'm in a financial crisis, and I need such and such amount of money. I need it only for one week, but it's a large amount of money, but I need it right now, and I can pay you back in one week, and I guarantee it, and I show you documentation also. This shows you I can definitely pay it back, but right now I need this money, and can you loan it to me? But I guarantee, absolutely, I'll give it back to you in one week. And here's the, here's, the, here's the documentation showing you. But can you do that? And if Mugi's known me for 30 years, and me, whoever it is, it's completely hypothetical. If, if he knows that friend, then he might very well say, absolutely. And then he looks at the sum. Oh, that's all the money I have. That's all the money I have. In the bank, that's interesting. It's just about the same amount. But if you need it now, and the person says, I really, really need it. It's desperate. Then I can imagine Mugi, anyone, saying, saying if you need it, you've got it. And writing a check for all the money you have in the bank. And you might even take out your wallet and say, do you need it a little bit more? Okay. I got a credit card, you know? You need a bit more? In other words, you give it all away if, it's, if, if the friend really needs it and you have total trust. And then one week later, the, the person comes, Mugi, here's the money, thank you, that was a lifesaver, that really helped. Here's the money, thank you so much. And does exactly what he promised to do. And so you know that your trust was well-placed. So just a metaphor, right? But it's like that. As you're breathing out, give it all away, even your wallet. Utterly release, utterly release, completely release. Until a week later, the breath just flows in. You didn't have to go out and call on it. You didn't have to, hey, it's a week gone by, you remember me? You remember me? Doesn't have to do that. No, the person comes to Mugi and said, Mugi, here's the check. Here's your full, all the money back. Thank you. I'll give you back every cent. The breath just comes in without you having to grab it, worry about it, hope for it, desire it. It just comes to you. So utterly releasing, utterly releasing all the way out until the in-breath just flows in effortlessly. Right? And then one day, one day, hopefully a long time from now, you'll make a loan of all your breath. And it won't be paid back. Because you don't need it. Because your body doesn't work anymore. It can't handle the breath. It, it's useless. So you give everything away, but that was your final one. And if you needed more, you would get more, but the body can't deal with it, can't use it. It's money that can't be spent. So you breathe out, and there's no in-breath. And that was your last one. But you gave, you gave at the office. 
you know, the final. And now your mindfulness of breathing practice is finished. There's no more breathing. Don't have to. So that phase of your practice finished. Right? But you can still practice settling the mind. Because even after your breathing has stopped, there will still arise appearances. Your brain hasn't completely shut down. If we look at the, the biological correlates, brain hasn't shut down. So you can say, okay, but I've become adept in all three practices. And mindfulness of breathing, finished. Okay? But I can still practice settling the mind. And then bring your awareness fully to the space of the mind as one by one your physical senses shut down. Dissolve back into mental. The spaces of visual space, auditory, dissolve into, withdraw into space of the mind. But you're saying, oh, I've done this before. I've done this before. But now nature is helping me. And that is, I don't have to be distracted by sounds or pain in these and so forth. In this practice, zupme, dame, time, rome, rectame. In this practice, there is no form, there is no sound, there is no smell, there is no taste, there is no tactile. It's all dissolving into this facsimile of emptiness. So, ah, reality is helping me this time, no distractions. And then, oh, but there's all this internal. Well, just keep on watching. And all the internal chit-chat, the memories, the fantasies, the hopes and fears, calming down, calming down. So say, wow, this is like achieving shamatha, but it's really fast. Everything goes down, and you watch yourself losing your mind as it dissolves your mind, having the senses having dissolved into the mind, and now your coarse mind dissolving into substrate consciousness. Oh, now you can't practice settling the mind in its natural state anymore, because it's there's nothing to watch. That is, there's nothing, no thoughts and so forth. There's no settling process to observe anymore. The mind has settled in its natural state. It's finished. It's done. You've lost your mind. It's dissolved into the substrate consciousness. But then, intuitively, without internal chit-chat, you may recall or ascertain, I can still practice, awareness of awareness. And I can be dead lucidly. You can still practice. Right? And you may prolong it, hang out lucidly in the bliss, the luminosity, and non-conceptuality of being dead, lucidly. And if you've done some other practice, then when that phase is over, then you maybe go beyond the dead into the clear light of death. So, meanwhile, as we say in California, meanwhile back on the ranch, meanwhile where we are here among the living, if you're living in this tumultuous ADHD society. Oh, and by the way, my neuroscientist friend commenting that there was no research. That's because all the research is being done on drugs. And a little bit for ADHD. Massive amounts, millions of dollars spent on finding drug therapy for ADHD. But you try to squeeze out a few pennies for some human-like prevention and treatment. That's tough. That's tough. Okay? This is where worldview and values comes in. Unless we start shifting our values, then we're always going to be thinking for the quick fix. We'll be looking for some powerful, even violent intervention that goes directly to the brain, is never a cure for anything, suppresses the symptom, 
and then, and then chalk it up as one success, we have one intervention at least. Yeah, that's where all the money went. If there hadn't been any money to research Ritalin or these other drugs, then we wouldn't know whether they're any good for anything either. They are good for something. But we know that because an enormous amount of money went into that. An enormous amount of money is being made peddling those drugs. How wonderful it would be if we not only had drugs, which can be very useful, but a, can you imagine that a comparable amount of money would be spent testing things that actually address us as human beings and not as machines? The money is there too. Even though it's not profitable, it's not lucrative, how marvelous that would be, a world in which we recognize the value of both. There's a tremendous value in drugs. We've seen it ourselves in this retreat. There's also big downside, but sometimes the upside is much greater. But to balance that with how can we raise our children so that they, they don't fall into and succumb, become roadkill on the great path of modernity, the great freeway of modernity, where we just treat them like machines that bra whose brains get out of, out of whack and need to be chemically treated. Like, a, like an automobile engine. So coming back to the practical issue, here's one, but then that wasn't enough, because for a number of people, the mind still wanders, wanders. What to do in the infirmary? Earth Alum, you've heard it before. What I would suggest now, when, if you're in this situation where the mind is clear, you're motivated, you're bright, you're disciplined, you have ethics, and everything is there, and the mind is still wandering, what to do? I'm gonna wrap up quickly here. Here's what I would suggest, something practical. And that is, go back to counting the breaths. But if you can't count to one to a hundred, now this is classic Theravada. I haven't mentioned this though, but now I'm mentioning it again, squeeze me dry before this, you know, before Friday's over. Um, count one to five, just one to five. Count one count at the end of the inhalation, relax deeply, utterly let go of the breath, as I said before releasing any thought, taking it very seriously. This is my whole session. I'm just breathing out. This is it. Count, breathe in, but resting in that earth element, attending to the sensations also of the breath. Count two, just count to five. If you can't make it to five, if the mind wanders before you get to three, before you get to four, then here's another method. I think it's from Buddhaghosa, if I remember correctly. At the end of inhalation, count one, and then breathe out. End of exhalation, breathe one. Breathe in, two. Breathe out, two. So you have more road markers. This is like a person who wanders off the road ever so easily. So have a road, have a, have a road marker every 50 meters. You're still on Highway 101, still Highway 101. This is it, whoops, you're not on Highway 101. What, 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 what? Oh, back, back here. Highway 101, Highway 1, what, what, what? Okay, back here. You know, just frequent reminders at the end of every in-breath, every out-breath, and only count to five, okay? That can help, that can help, count. And then break it up, sometimes just go for mindful walking. Unleash a little bit of that turbulent, turbulent energy just by walking, and we'll let your awareness come down to the ground, down to the ground, okay? So there's the earth element, the mindfulness of breathing response to it. Keep the session short, don't be sloppy, from the time you begin to sit, immediately take it seriously. Don't take 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes to kind of slip into it after wandering all over the place. Sit down, boom, like you're just watching your favorite James Bond movie and you know the opening scenes were a thriller. That's not a time to be going out for popcorn, right? 
Oh, I missed the opening scene. Oh, no. This is terrible. I'm going to have to see the movie all over again. <laughs> you know? So treat meditation at least as seriously as a James Bond movie. That's, that's, that's the real moral of the story here. Right? And then the other practice is the one we're going to do now. The Padmasambhava states this practice can be very helpful for developing stability. And that's what this is all about by way of awareness of awareness, but a practice that really can be effective in just a radiantly clear, luminous, space-like way of just emerging through the clouds of this dense, obsessive, compulsive, delusional disorder, coming into the bright, clear sky of awareness itself. And then you may alternate earth to sky, earth to sky. Okay? Let's try. Letting your awareness descend into the body, right down to the ground, to the earth element. And let your awareness rise up and fill the space of the body, right to the crown of the head. And set your body at ease, in stillness and in vigilance. Practice now, giving away every out-breath, all of it, right down to the last penny. Again, without pushing it out. This is not an effortful practice. It is a practice of complete release. And it is a practice of trust. Trusting when the body needs air, the air will flow in. And you can simply witness this occurring. 
for a little while. Settle your mind in its natural state, at ease, in stillness in the present moment, clear, by way of mindfulness of breathing. Let your eyes be open. Cast your gaze downwards. And without meditating on anything, without striving, without desire, with no object, simply rest and be present.
let your awareness rest in its own nature without exerting itself to attend to any other object. Whenever any thought arises, release the effort that is required to sustain the thought. and set your own rhythm, either in conjunction with the in and out breath, or without any correlation with the respiration. Draw your awareness inwards upon the one who is observing the one who is aware. Draw your awareness in upon the consciousness that focuses, that it becomes focused, and the consciousness that is released. And observe closely. Who is the observer?
more deeply you penetrate inwards as you seek to observe the observer, the more fully you may release into utter effortlessness. As you invert your awareness, penetrate even more deeply into the inner sanctum, the nucleus. Who is it that is concentrating the awareness and releasing the awareness? Who is the agent? Who is the one in charge? Concentrate fiercely, single-pointedly, and then release utterly.
invert into no subject, release into no object. until you see there is no difference, and let your awareness remain right where it is, just for a moment. And let's bring this session to a close. So these practices are medications to heal us from modernity. And this practice in particular, a powerful medicine, a medication to heal us from the delusion of reducing ourselves to matter, as if we don't matter and only the brain does. It's a very tragic view. Really, it's very tragic. It's not just a philosophical view. It's a tragic view, dehumanizing, degrading, very sad. So, but we don't have to stay there. This is the practice. Penetrate through all the veils of grasping. And as Padmasambhava says, on the one hand, this simple practice, there is nothing more to it than that right there. This can give rise to a fine sense of stability. This practice may lead you all the way to realization of Rikpa. Realize that, and you will die well after having lived very well. Good. Let's take a break.